millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, the arts editor of the TLS, and today I'm speaking to Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan has been writing about our interactions with nature in the form of gardening, plant life, food and cooking for over 25 years now, which means he's also been talking about history, geography, politics, science, culture, agriculture and anthropology, to name a few. He's now turned his attention to psychedelic drugs, also found in nature, of course, exploring their history, landscape and potential benefits and downfalls in his new book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics. And I'm delighted he's here to talk about this today. Michael, many thanks for coming. Sure, Lucy. Good to be here. Can I start by asking for, uh, I know this is rather a large question, a bit of a a potted history about how psychedelic drugs, particularly LSD, which was man-made, moved from the status of scientific experiment to Timothy Leary-led counterculture to the underground (laughs) and back into scientific experiment? Yeah, it's been a checkered history. Uh, for most of us, I think psychedelic history begins in the 60s, and mm. that's a, that's wrong. That's an illusion. But that's when they came to public attention. Um, before that, though, there was first an ancient history, going back to um, traditional societies thousands of years ago, that used not LSD, which was not invented until the 1930s, but uh, other psychedelic plants and fungi, whether in you know talking about the Amazon or uh, Central America or Siberia. I mean, they're, they're, these mushrooms and plants have been used for psychedelic experiences for a very long time. The recent history in the West really begins with the... Um, this period of research pre-1960, beginning around 1950 or so, where you had uh, 10 or 15 years of very productive research by psychiatrists and other scientists uh, in the UK, in Canada, in the United States. And they were trying to figure out what these drugs were good for. Uh, when Albert Hoffman, the, um, the chemist at Sandoz in Switzerland, discovered quite by accident, LSD, uh, accidentally ingested some in 1943 and realized he had a very powerful psychotropic drug on his hand. He uh, didn't know what it was good for, and no one at Sandoz did. So they, um, they did this very interesting thing, which has created this crowdsourced research project. They offered to give it to any researcher or therapist who wanted it for free, mm. as long as they would report back. So and, find out what this does. Yeah. Can you tell us what this and does? And what, what might it be good for? And yeah. they went through a series of different paradigms. Uh, you know, initially they thought it was a, they called it a psychomimetic, which meant, a uh, psychotomimetic, I'm sorry, which meant that it imitated psychosis. And they thought, well, this is a model of schizophrenia. Um, therapists can take this drug and see what it's like to be mad. Mm-hmm. But the, the therapists and the researchers all took the drug 
drug themselves, which was considered the ethical thing to do back then. That's one um, of the extraordinary shifts. Yeah, it, it is quite a shift. Yeah. But they felt it was, uh, you know, to give it to other people and make them guinea pigs if you're not willing to try it on yourself is problematic. Mm. And they learned a lot by taking it themselves. One is they learned, oh, this isn't, this doesn't feel like psychosis. This is actually feels kind of great. Um, so they realized maybe that's not the right model. And they went through a series of models and gradually develop what we think of now as psychedelic uh, therapy or psychedelic assisted therapy, which is a guided journey where people are given uh, a good deal of preparation by a therapist, uh, accompanied during the experience, and then integrated, um, you know, in efforts made to understand what happened. And they found in through the 50s and early 60s that it was very useful in treating alcoholism, depression, addiction, the anxiety of people who were dying. Mm. Um, and it was regarded as a psychiatric wonder drug. And am I right in thinking, did you say that, that this is also the beginning of of, of psychiatrists thinking about brain chemistry yeah. rather than, you know, thinking actually if we give someone a chemical, this is actually changing their... It led to a whole new understanding of the mind yeah. uh, and the brain because um, the uh, one of the things that struck the researchers was that such a small number of molecules of LSD could have such a profound effect. Mm. And this leads to the discovery of neurotransmitters and that if an if an outside drug could have this effect, there must be an inside drug that these receptors are designed for. So there's a path from the discovery of LSD to the discovery of serotonin and in turn the antidepressants. Uh, and that whole industry. Yeah, really. that entire industry that works on this understanding of neurotransmitters. So psychedelics has contributed to our understanding of the mind at, at many phases, uh, mm. many stages along the way. Um, then the 60s comes along and something... Um, you know, depending on your point of view, wonderful or, or, or disastrous happens. And that is the drugs leave the laboratory or mm. escape the laboratory, as, as it's often put. Uh, people like Timothy Leary, who were uh, serious scientists to begin with, he was a very well-regarded personality scientist, gets to Harvard, starts something called the Harvard Psilocybin Project. Mm -hmm. Psilocybin is the ingredient in magic mushrooms. Um, and he's very interested in treating individuals and over time becomes so uh, over-enthusiastic about the potential of, of psilocybin and LSD to treat the whole civilization that he gets bored with treating individuals and, and decides that everybody should use this drug and everyone should turn on, tune in, drop out. And it's not... We can't put it all on him because the drug was probably going to find its way into the counterculture other ways. Mm. It was already kind of a party drug in L.A. in the 50s. A lot of celebrities were getting it in their in their psychotherapy and, mm. and talking about how wonderful it was. Cary Grant extolled the virtues of it. Yes, there were a number of film stars, weren't there? And Cary Grant oh, yeah. took it lots and Jack lots Nicholson, of times. Jack Nicholson, Stanley Kubrick. Said it was wonderful. And this was, was this trips. because of Aldous Huxley or was Aldous Huxley afterwards? No, no, this is this is well after. Yeah. Um, Aldous Huxley really uh, introduced many people to psychedelic experience. He was he had experimented with mescaline in the early fifties, mm. and his account, which is a beautiful account, um, really set the stage for you know the experience many other people would have. Mm -hmm. the, one of the interesting things about psychedelics is they're, they're the ex your expectation strongly influences the effect. So if you've read Huxley, you're going to have a Huxleyan trip. Yes, and yeah. um, what's interesting about um, 
this is that can be put to very good use if a therapist is administering the drug and telling you you're going to have a mystical experience that's going to help you deal with your death, you're more likely to have exactly that kind of experience. Because uh, is it that you say that one of the scientists calls it a non-specific amplifier? Of so mental it's processes, just, it's yeah. tuning in to, you know, or it's finding things that are there and sending them back out to you and amplifying yeah, them. Yeah, it's, it's basically taking um, various filters and restrictions off of your brain mm. and it's deregulating mental activity. The brain's a hierarchical system, and there is uh, this top-down network called the default mode network that kind of keeps things in check, um, is perhaps the home of the ego, and tends to defend us against, um, you know, strong emotions and subconscious material. And this network appears to be shut down, uh, or or at least silenced, uh, diminished in, in its effects, with the result that lots of material starts bubbling up and even sensory information, more sensory information gets in. Mm. Um, so it's a disorganization of the brain um, that uh, can actually be very therapeutic. But, you know, to continue on this history, after it becomes a counterculture drug, this becomes very threatening to the powers that be. And mm. um, it's clearly shaping the, the counterculture, contributing to the generation gap, the fact that um, American boys won't fight in Vietnam, and the questioning of authority that goes on during that period. And it was very threatening to, um, to President Nixon, and uh, who mm. called Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America, which, which is an astonishing we claim. I presume Timothy Leary took it as a compliment. Oh, I'm sure he was thrilled <laughs> he was absolutely by delighted. an honor. But, and he taunted Nixon back by saying things like... Um, you know, boys who take LSD will not fight your wars or join your corporations, all of yeah. which was true. And, and also some of the scare stories came out from then, didn't they, of, of yeah. bad trips. But And do you think some of that is because of precisely the lack of set and setting and ritual? Well, some of the bad trips really happened, but there were yeah. also scare stories that were deliberately uh, seeded in the culture yeah, to, sure. to, um, to discourage people from using the drugs. I mean, there was a real campaign... And the media changes from being incredibly supportive. Mm -hmm. Time Life, which was the media empire of its time, uh, was incredibly supportive of psychedelics from the mid-50s till 1965 or so. And it turns on a dime. And mm. suddenly there, these drugs scramble your chromosomes. You're going to have a trip from which you may never come back. And, mm. and all these kind of tropes enter the culture. But there were... People were having bad trips, and they had more bad trips the more they read about bad trips. It was a because kind of, of self-fulfilling, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and again, the expectations. Yeah. Um, bad trips were sometimes mis misunderstood as psychotic breaks or psychotic episodes. Often they were just panic attacks uh, that subsided, but they were, make no mistake, they were really terrifying. Mm. And there were people who were tripped into schizophrenia, no doubt, by um, psychedelics. If you were at risk for schizophrenia, you know, it's something that kicks in at around 19, 20, 21, which is, happens to be the same age people use psychedelics yeah. very often, uh, it becomes the cause. Uh, but there could have been another trigger. So we don't actually know that psychedelics ever has uh, caused mental illness that wasn't pre-existing. Um, it may be, um, mm -hmm. you know. So but it's just I'm, not proven, is it, either no, way? No, we shouldn't, we shouldn't minimize the risks. There, there, there mm. are psychological risks. The physical risks are remarkably uh, mild, actually. Mm. The drugs are fairly non-toxic. And, and um, non-addictive. And non-addictive, yeah. yeah. Um, your first reaction upon completing a, a big psychedelic journey is not, where can I get some more? It's like, do I ever have to do this again? It's, <laughs> it, and, and even rats get offered LSD, will try it once and never again. Whereas with cocaine, they'll 
press that lever, you know, right. endlessly until they die. Yeah. So no, they're not addictive. They're relatively non-toxic, but they do have psychological risk. And people should understand that. I'm sure there are people who have committed suicide on psychedelics, yet there are untold numbers of people who have committed suicides on SSRIs, but it's not a big story because mm. it doesn't plug into that narrative of the to evil the narrative LSD. Of, of the danger. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Can I ask you about the, uh, an episode, or, well, not an episode, but the involvement of the CIA, which was one of yeah. the kind of rather horrible kind of side stories of, it is. of the whole It is a horrible the whole story. Narrative. So there was a parallel research program going on through the 50s, beginning, I think, in 53. It was called MK Ultra, mm. uh, And this was the CIA's efforts to weaponize LSD and other psychedelics. They felt that here was a strong um, uh, psychoactive drug that they could perhaps use in warfare in some way. They weren't sure how. And they went through, as did the, 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 the university researchers, a series of different paradigms. Mm. So first it was going to be an interrogation drug. They would give it to people and then a truth serum. And they would yeah. get the truth. But they got crazy so stuff. They got, <laughs> <laughs> they got what someone in LSD would tell you, people which isn't wow. true necessarily. <laughs> then they moved into another paradigm, which was... Um, it could be a, a bioweapon, you know, put it in the water, aerosolize it, and you disable a population yeah. with LSD. There are rumors that they tried this in a, in a town in France. No, no one's ever confirmed it. Um, and then the other idea was to get it in the hands uh, or into the bodies of, um, of world leaders, enemy world leaders, and, and they would do stupid things that would discredit them. And we don't know that they ever tried that. Again, um, that's quite a plan. But they did some very unethical things along the way, which included dosing people without their permission to see what would happen. They set up a brothel in um, San Francisco and New York with a one-way glass. And for some reason, that was their brilliant idea. And they would, the Johns, as they would come in, they'd give them a drink that was laced with LSD, and then they would see what would happen. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> That's like what you would read about in Catch-22, but it's, but it's not real. <laughs> and it's not funny. <laughs> no, no, it's, you're it was, right. It's it was less really funny cruel. Than... I mean, I think dosing people with a psychedelic without their permission is one of the cruelest things you can do. Mm. Um, 
This comes to light not until the till this 1970s. Um, and in fact, when that story uh, was exposed, and we had the church committee hearings in 1974, 75, and another set of hearings specifically about the CIA and LSD, um, that also, in addition to the counterculture associations, made the researchers very... Um, uncomfortable about studying it. It, it just yeah. it just kind of contributed to the stigma. There was nothing good to be said about these drugs. And the research gradually grinds to a halt. The funding dries up. Mm. And by the early 70s, that's it for this, um, what had been a very promising line of, of research. Mm -hmm. It's over. And, and we go into this dark age. So then the people who are taking it are underground. They're... Yeah. Oh yeah, people keep taking it, um, but they but they can't be doing studies. They're not using it therapy, or they might be using it therapeutically, but it's not. It's not controlled it's, in yeah, any way. Yeah. yeah. So you have some. You know, there were a great number of um, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists of various stripes, especially on the west coast of America, who were finding great results, uh, and they simply didn't want to stop. Um, and they were willing to take the risk, and they continued. And there's there's a lineage of those people from the 70s who go underground, yeah. and the 80s, because MDMA or ecstasy is is legal till 1985, yeah. and many of them were using that drug as well. Um, they go underground, and they begin training other people. And there's a lineage of people that I and some of whom I worked with in my own researches. Um, mm -hmm. But you have this 30-year period during which research doesn't happen, and I, I don't know of another case of of, of, a, of a line of scientific investigation that gets stopped for such a long period. Well, it's like you say. Uh, you say in the book that opiates are incredibly dangerous and used illegally. You know, to, and legally, with great harm. Uh, but and legally, but but they didn't stop being used. No. And tested and no this is a very unusual um episode in the history of science i think mm. and um these drugs are just so stigmatized that uh and the scientists frankly were not profiles encouraged in keeping it going or fighting for their use um they felt this snigger factor you know and they were and they were embarrassed too and they and they mm. They, they didn't fight it very much. Um, but now it's become... It's back. It's back. There's been a renaissance. Yeah. And yeah. it begins, and I tell the story of that in the book, mm. um, it really begins in the late 90s, uh, mid-90s. A group of, of therapists, activists, psychonauts starts organizing, like, how can we get this going again? Um, and the FDA, the, the Food and Drug Administration, in charge of approving drug testing, um, basically lets the researchers know, look, we'll look at this like any other drug. We'll leave aside the fact it's illegal and all the yeah. baggage. And you have, um, driven by a handful of people in our country, um, uh, a man named Bob Jesse mm -hmm. and Rick Doblin, who is head of MAPS. Rick Doblin is, is, sorry to interrupt, but the, this very good quote that you said that he said, he said last year at the conference, we're not the counterculture, we're the we're culture. The culture. We're, well, that's a measure of how now. things have changed. Yeah. But he's been fighting since the mid 80s to bring back psychedelics. I'm mm -hmm. um, knocking his head against the wall continually since then. And he's really charted the path that everybody is on to seek uh, federal approval yeah. for these drugs. In this country, Amanda Fielding plays a, a very important role of, mm -hmm. of you know, keeping that, uh, that light, uh, that flame burning, and then um, supporting research. Mm -hmm. at, uh, first at Bristol and then at Imperial College with uh, David Nutt and, and Robin Carhart-Harris, yeah. who's, who's emerged as a, a leading um, researcher in, in psychedelics right here in London. Mm -hmm. With all that good work, and funding, because the government still doesn't fund this kind of research, 
Uh, it's all private. Um, the research has begun again, and it, it began repeating studies that have been done in the 50s because they weren't done to modern standards. Yeah. Um, the controlled double-blind trial really isn't isn't standard until 1962 or 63. Mm-hmm. It's early days, but they're getting very promising results in yeah. the treatment of depression, uh, the, the, the depression and anxiety of cancer patients, addictions, uh, both alcoholism and uh, cigarette smoking. And there's some work proposed about opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. And so there is this very interesting revival right now. And it, and it comes at an important time because we really have a, a crisis in mental health uh, worldwide right now. I mean, but yeah, that's what you said, that the FDA was ready to think about it again because because the treatments that were there are not really working. They don't have a lot of tools. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you compare mental health treatment to any other branch of science, uh, whether you're talking about cardiology or oncology, cancer treatment or uh, infectious disease, all of which have made enormous strides in the last 15, 20 years in terms mm. of, you know, reducing suffering, lengthening lifespan, um, saving lives. Numbers you, in terms of numbers. Oh, yeah. yeah. But you look at mental health care and that's not happening. Yeah. Um, the rates of depression are up 18 percent since 2005 worldwide. Uh, suicide rates are up um, and, uh, and addiction is rampant. Mm. And so... I think that the recept- receptivity of many establishment figures in psychiatry, not all, but many, uh, and the regulators, um, both here in, in England at the EMA and, uh, and at the FDA, is a reflection of the need for new innovation in mental health treatment. And because there hasn't been much innovation since the early 90s. That's the therapeutic side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to ask you, because in a way you've acted like the... Um, the researchers and the people who were um, interested in it in the 60s in that you you wanted to experience it for yourself. Mm. And so this was not for a therapeutic. This was to... Because a lot of the... It seems to me that a lot of the people who are, are very evangelical, that might be slightly too strong a word. No, that's, that's a good word. <laughs> but it's not only for its therapeutic use. It's also for use on the so-called well people. Yeah, the betterment of well people, as yeah. one researcher put it to me. And so you wanted to try it for yourself. I did, I, I, for a couple of reasons, some of them journalistic and some of them more personal. Um, I'm very, you know, it's the way I do journalism. I, I like to immerse myself in the story. Mm-hmm. When I wrote about the cattle industry, I bought a cow. You know, this is the kind of thing I do. <laughs> um, because you get a perspective you can't get any other way. Yeah. And I, But it was also because I was interviewing so many volunteers and patients, and they had had such extraordinary experiences of transformation, of mm. spiritual insight. I'd never had a spiritual insight, I don't think. And um, that I got intensely curious about what it was like. And, uh, and I got a little jealous of the people I was interviewing, that they were having these big experiences. And I was, you know, approaching 60 and kind of getting curious about, you know, thinking about death and thinking about, a spiritual experience. And so it became more of a personal quest. And so for part of the book, I, I go underground, I find my own therapists, uh, mm-hmm. all of whom are working illegally and, you know, were incredibly generous in cooperating with a journalist in this process. Um, and, uh, and had a series of guided um, psychedelic journeys where I tried to mimic as much as I could what was going on in the, in the university trials in terms of, you know, the preparation and the, mm-hmm. And, yeah, and the dosage and a lot of attention to, to set and setting and yeah. setting an intention, which is also something that people are encouraged to do. Yeah. And I did, uh, I had an experience with LSD, two experiences with psilocybin, one guided, one not. A um, couple ayahuasca circles. Mm-hmm. This is an Amazonian drug. It's a tea made from two plants. Uh, one contains DMT. 
and a very obscure psychedelic called 5-MeO-DMT, which is the smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert Toad. I have to say that one does <coughs> not sound reading your. It doesn't sound nice doing it, and your it account nice. sounds. It was like terrifying. It was horrendous. It was terrifying. I was. I thought I was dying. I thought it would never end. Um, the best thing about it was it only lasted twenty minutes, although it felt like an eternity. Right. Um, so yeah, it's they're not. It's not all sweetness and light. I mean, no. these can be very difficult experiences, even in some of the ones I would regard as very positive. There were episodes of confronting death and people who died in my life and and um, my own mortality. Um, you know, there's there's you pass through dark passages and. Um, but there were also moments of incredible, um, uh, you know, ecstatic emotions too, and uh, it's quite a roller coaster. But the most significant thing I think for me was in my second experience on psilocybin, where I felt very safe and I was on a very high dose, and I was with someone I really trusted, a woman I really trusted, that I experienced the utter dissolution of my ego, and that was something I had never experienced before, and it was uh, transformative um, because. Mm-hmm. You know, we identify with our egos. We assume that chattering voice in our head is us. And um, to see it um, evaporate, I mean, in my case, it turned into a sheaf of little papers that... Mm -hmm. um, but that I, this other I that suddenly manifested, felt was fine with, felt no desire to pile back together. Yeah. I was... um, I'd acquired this incredibly disinterested, objective perspective on myself. And... um, Then that was okay. It was okay. It was more yeah. than okay. It was yeah. liberating. And I realized, wow, there's another ground on which to stand in life besides mm-hmm. this ego ground where most of us stand. So your your doors of perception were opened a bit. They were. They were. And I don't know what this other consciousness was. I think it's the consciousness people achieve in, you know, very experienced meditators and mm. Buddhists. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, it's a transcendence uh-huh. of the self yeah. that puts you in a space of this kind of calm awareness and um, in which whatever is happening, whatever is going through your mind, you just let go. And I think it's that experience that really helped the people who are dying to inhabit that kind of consciousness, even for a period of time where everything is okay. Well, I wish we could talk about this for another hour and a half. (laughs) But unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Lucy. It was very good to be here. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.